0: Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've got Adam Luca with me. Adam, for those who aren't familiar with you yet, can you give us a quick introduction?
1: Hey, Holly, I'm Adam Luca. I'm SoftCatch Chief Technologist for Security. So I work for, I believe, the UK's second largest uh, technology reseller, Uh, and I work in the advisory part of that team uh, and focusing on cybersecurity. Well, that
0: sounds pretty cool, but what's a technologist and how do you become a technologist?
1: (laughs) How do you become a technologist? It's, um, I think it's one of those catch all phrases. um, So I do, I guess a number of different things as part of my role. I spend a lot of time with our customer base. So I spend a lot of time embedded in our customers dealing with uh, security transformation programs, I also spend a decent amount of my time with the vendor community. So feeding back on product roadmap, Mm -hmm. making sure that technology, I guess, is relevant to what we're seeing and our customers need, but also looking at where the technology is going and generally trying to cut through the noise. I think as an industry, as the security industry, we have probably brilliant marketing budgets, um, but often the stories are overblown. and, And for me, it's really key to get down into why do people want to do things with that technology what is its specific value so I spend a lot of time I guess trying to cut through that noise from vendors uh, and then I guess the other side of what I do is I look after our cyber assessment team so a team of security consultants who help customers go on improvement programs so it's quite varied I guess as an as a role really um, I'm super lucky I get to do something that I'm very passionate about and I think is very interesting and I've I guess I've sort of had a potted history through cybersecurity. so I started out in a in a, a sort of customer-facing role before moving into a, an architecture role, and and finally this job what I find myself in now.
0: So you talk about, I guess, this idea of marketing versus security. But why does that happen? Why do we sometimes feel like it's one against the other? Why do we have to cut through the vendor noise?
1: Um, I think I think the problem with security is that the 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 truth is that it's complex and it's the devil's often very much in the detail. And I think what happens is that vendors and technology providers try and simplify the message so that it becomes accessible to more people, but in that process they lose the the sort of the essence of what they're trying to say. And often that things become so overgeneralized that they're no longer true to any of the scenarios. It's sort of like the adage that one size fits nobody. Um and, and I think as a security industry we have we have a real challenge with that. I think often this is also Combined with the fact that differentiation is very difficult, and testing essentially the efficacy, so how good a product is, is is, is increasingly difficult because we can only regression test. We can only test against the the the, the history. We can only go back and look at okay, well, how well will that have worked against this particular thing? And because our industry is always evolving, um, and new uh, techniques, new methodologies are being created all the time, um, I think that it's really hard for vendors to say, well, our technology is going to be better than someone else. And I think they rely on marketing to do that for them.
0: So it's a split between getting the message out and trying to simplify the complexity. I know that happens in pen testing, just difficulties in terminology, where what pen testing can mean differs between contexts.
1: And I think people often use that to their advantage. I, you know, if, i think that often organisations uh, when you work for a technology provider i think a lot of them unfortunately always want their answer to their technology to be the right answer um rightly or wrongly and I, and i think they will stretch the definition of something to its absolute limit um which therefore means that customers become further confused about what what certain vendors or technologies do and which areas they play in
0: is there anything that companies can do at their end to deal with that then because you talk about how you sit dealing with the vendor community, but is there anything that an organization looking at products can do to help them cut through the marketing?
1: I think you have to. I think so the part of this uh, blame kind of feels like a bit of a strong word, but I guess part of the responsibility sits, I would say, on the, the consumer side or so on the customer side. And, and I think customers need to be really clear about what they want. Um, it's incredible how many conversations I find myself going into where they've let their requirements become be, be driven by the vendor or via yeah. the, the technology rather than truly understanding what is the scenario they're trying to defend against. What is the risk? What is the what is the uh, that what is the, the threat angle they're trying to look at and very yeah. clearly why do they want to do that in the first place? But number two, then what is the scenario I want to defend against and, and clearly articulate that so I kind of say th- that's the first step from the customer's perspective the, the second piece then is to then say well given those set of requirements given what I have how does then the technology that I'm looking at match against that and I, and I always say that people should ask vendors to put their money where their mouth is and very clearly design and demonstrate their solution, providing the control layers that the customer's looking to implement. Um, I think there's a big difference between saying, uh, we stop files being, tra- say, we uh, we provide a DLP for USBs, say, for example. That's- have looking at as a very thousand foot marketing tip box, this Hey, we have a a DLP device control uh, option on this endpoint solution versus something that has exactly the type of functionality you need that it's able to identify specific device identifiers and it's able to validate those and it's able to log and audit. And mm-hmm. but you need to be clear, or the customer needs to be clear on what they're looking to get out of it in the first place to effectively measure the market.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just as you were talking, there is actually thinking. You say customers let vendors drive the requirements. So that reminded me of, you know, this idea where certain companies might offer, you know, a, a pro version of their products. The pro version is better, but if you're looking for a product and some of the pro version features are not in your original requirements, you sometimes still, you know, end up kind of wanting it because it's better, even if it's not necessarily as close a fit to your original requirement uh, that you had. Uh, and also, sometimes you know it might just be needlessly more expensive, but you're kind of balancing that um, features offered versus desirability
1: one hundred percent and I think um I think simplicity is key in in i don't know maybe in most aspects of at least the way I would approach my life, but I think specifically in cybersecurity um i I think a lot of failures, if you can call it that, or, or mistakes that have been made is through the over-complication of things to the point where it's it's impossible to actually unpick what it's doing. And I think obscurity and complexity are sort of some of the greatest enemies of, of, of an effective cybersecurity provision. Um, I think if you add complexity, it becomes more difficult to, to manage, it becomes more difficult to monitor, it becomes much more difficult to measure. Um, and if you add those things up, then it increases the likelihood that someone's going to make a mistake. So trying to, to be as simple as possible and to approach cybersecurity in the simplest way, I think is always going to, to give you the best outcomes.
0: How do you do all of that though? When organizations are rushing to implement things, maybe that's because of a change in the threat landscape, like everybody moving to work from home, or maybe it's just a perception that the company is at risk and you need to move quickly, as quickly as possible. It sounds like what you're talking about here is running through an awful lot of tests and diligence work, but won't that delay you getting the protection that you need?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair challenge. Um, I think when I think about approaching it, um, I, I think people should try and answer the, the question completely. And by that, what I mean is think about security architecturally and functionally. And even if you don't have the money today to buy all of those solutions, I, I'd like to say that all organizations can think about the problem completely and then work out where they're. You know how much investment they have, the prioritization that they go through based upon what's right for them. But I don't think that you should think about the answer as a point problem, because I think that's where you get into the challenge. Um, I think if you're coming round to thinking about a problem based upon a trigger like a knee-jerk of a threat model change or a, or a or a scenario change, then you're likely to not be looking at the problem wide enough. And I think we we need to be encouraging people to spend more time in the the, the thinking and planning stage so that we can have these answers more readily available when they become, when they come to the top of the business priority list um, rather than waiting till they come to the top of the business priority list and then going oh god I need to put the answer in because I'm already six weeks late because you know my boss says I need to implement this requirement versus taking that measured thought as part of building a plan so that you, you've got the answers ready and that you've thought about how things integrate and how things operate
0: How do you make sure that you can do that, though, given that changes in the organisation can be unpredictable? You know, maybe a member of staff leaves or there's a pandemic or something. How do you deal with those things when they're difficult to plan for?
1: Fundamentally, you you can't plan for everything and and accepting that is fine. But I I don't think that should be the reason we don't try to, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And increasing increasing the amount of coverage we have and, and the amount of time we spend thinking about this. I also think if we if we abstract the problem away so away from a specific issue maybe to then think about okay well what you know what is my what is fundamentally my security control model there are only so many egress and entry points there are there are there, those things are quite well defined so if I know, you know, say remote access is a thing, well, I know it's going to exist, I know it's going to impact these different systems, Um, I know I'm going to need some network inspection, I know I'm going to need some, you know, endpoint malware defences, and uh, build those pieces out functionally, so you have a functional control model that you might not even have all of that stuff, but you know that there's gaps in what you've got, and then if you then look to that, you can then already start to do well, you know, for my existing technology stack, what what vendors are reasonable for me to align as part of that because actually they fit into my overall uh, security architecture. I start to try and pre-plan this stuff so that when the the change does happen so when the in this example you know coronavirus kicks off and everyone's working from home you go okay well I've I, I had something for VPN because I'd already th- kind of thought about it even though I hadn't bought it and I had something for uh cloud web security or or whatever control i'm I'm missing and then it becomes just a money and implementation piece rather than the discovery is included
0: so that's more like documenting ideas even if you don't implement them so if you're working from an office you could think of oh we might need to work from home at some point so we should plan for that now even if we don't yet need it
1: yeah for sure and it's it's that like what if scenario isn't it it's the what ifs that enable us to do that 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 thinking process that that means that when we need that piece of information, it's ready rather than I think starting to think about it during the stress of whatever the business changes is not likely to leading lead you to make the best decisions because you're always going to be acting on the back foot. So I think it allows you to be more, uh, what's the right word and be more objective maybe about your decision making process. Um, And it also means that you engage with the vendor community better. if you think about how most people engage with vendors, they engage when they want to buy something. They're generally already in the place where they've got a budget approved, of some case, and they're <laughs> they're really um, and it's it's almost like when you 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 go to buy a car. The worst time to go buy a car is when your old car's broken, because yeah. you're gonna buy an impulse. You're gonna buy on the first thing that meets your minimum set of requirements without taking time. The best buy time to go look for a car is when you've just bought your car, because you're already really happy. You know, actually, what you're just doing is making sure you understand what might be ha- happening. They say the same about going shopping, isn't it? The worst time to go shopping is when you're hungry, <laughs> um, and I think that's probably the way. Often we go shopping for cybersecurity, we go shopping when we're hungry, versus going shopping when we're full.
0: Yeah, it's a, a difficult one, isn't it? I think one of the things that I was thinking, one of the questions I had was around testing efficacy. There's definitely something I agree with you on that it, it's hard to do. But you know, think of something like antivirus. How do you know your antivirus is working? Well, I don't have any viruses. Well, how do you know you don't have any viruses if you're relying on your antivirus? Uh, how do you set up these tests? You know, not not necessarily specifically for antivirus, but like broadly. How do you know your products are
1: working? I think it's, it genuinely is really hard. Um, I think you have to understand what you were expecting it to do in the first place. And I know it kind of slightly cyclical, but um, the if we take the antivirus example, you know, antiviruses are, it, are good at detecting viruses that it's able to detect. So does it detect the things it knows it can detect? Well, yes, so therefore it's doing its job. But you have to then understand what is the unknown space. So what is the thing it isn't meant to do? Um, and it's as we come into products that have more grays, it becomes much more difficult to identify. Yeah. So anything that's going to be not a yes or no, i.e. it's not a pattern match, it's not a sort of signature detection, mm-hmm. then um, you will come into this area of, of unknown. And I think what you have to then do there is understand actually what other processes do you have in place to blend together to cover those gaps. And and that's where really the the responsibility has to be on us as security practitioners to effectively monitor and feed and water these tools. Because we won't see the gaps emerging unless we're actively looking at it. We won't know our antivirus isn't performing unless we see another control detecting something that the antivirus should have seen. Whether that's, you know, a, a firewall picking up a, an event or, a, or, a, or say, a DLP solution noting a data exfiltration. So it is. It's in the combination of the tools. Do I start to get a view of any one particular area being weak because the other areas are, by their nature, strong, or, or stronger? Um, the other, the other thing you you can do is, uh, and we've we've done this is you you can simulate um, type styles of cyber attack I guess, um, and the efficacy of that is again uh, is something you could argue over, but but for me trying to understand, can your tool at the first case actually see that t- that TTP? Can it yeah. see that that technique? Is going to be the first thing because if you look at the sort of MITRE attack, in, uh, attack framework, which a lot of people are aligning their their endpoint or, or even um, cross uh, kind of cross technology detective capabilities against, fundamentally, if if it's not covered off on there, you know, if it can't detect a change in a, a startup, you know, in the, the startup uh, script of a of a computer, then you're never it's never going to work for that. So understanding what it's going to detect in the first place is important.
0: Just in case uh, some of the listeners haven't come across the MITRE ATT&CK framework yet, just just briefly, um, what is the MITRE ATT&CK framework?
1: So uh, the MITRE ATT&CK framework was a as an approach to classify and standardise the typical techniques performed by threat actors. So they looked at a, a number of different teams, but a lot of this came out of the um, what perceived to be the nation state sponsored attackers. Um, mm-hmm. And we what they did is they went and said, well rather than trying to look at all the malware samples that could ever be out there, which is, you know, I mean, unlimited realistically <laughs> considering you can make one up actually, how do we look for a smaller number of things? And, and what they start to do is say, well, actually what, what hackers do or what attackers do are the same every time the techniques, the, the process that they go through looks the same, you know, they're going to try and uh, get an initial foothold. They're going to then try and get persistence. They're then going to try and control, you know, uh, uh, speak back to a command and control server. They're then going to try and perform their activity on 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 whatever their target is. And if we then look at the activities rather than the malware, then in the fullness of time, and they looked at it academically initially, you know, if we could detect all of those things, then it wouldn't really matter what the malware was or what the exploit was they used, because what we cared about was the the, the methodology. And and that's sort of where we're seeing the the technology market move. But again, I have concerns about that with these things. We're often engineering for the test. We're often learning for the exam. And actually, a, you know, a skilled attacker knows how to obfuscate their, their, um, their technique. So while it performs the same action, it doesn't use exactly the same, uh, the same uh, technique or the same approach. Therefore, the pattern matching or whatever the, yeah. the technology is looking to, t- to detect on fails. And, and that's sort of where it falls down again. So we, we kind of make this progress as we do often, you know, we go signatures are bad. Let's go to heuristics. <laughs> and then we go, that's better. And then we go, oh, goddamn, yeah. heuristics suck because actually people have moved on. So it's this constant evolution, yeah. I guess.
0: For those that are searching for the Mitre Attack framework online, it is spelt with an ampersand. That is a clue if you can't find it. I think one of the big things that the the Mitre Attack framework brings is... Um, Working out specifically, you know, what is malicious can, can be a really difficult thing. What are all of the possible actions that uh, a red team or a real world threat actor are going to try? Uh, coming up with like a, a kind of finite list of all of those different techniques can be quite difficult. And, and that's one of the things that the Mitre ATT&CK Framework has tried to do is put together all of these, you know, TTPs. It's the kind of thing where you should be thinking, you know, if you spot one or two of these things, these activities on the network, then that should be a cause for concern. If you're spotting lots of them, then you should probably start sweating.
1: And yeah, I should say it's the combination of those that really starts to add weight to your alarm or to your, to your event that's going on in the organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, actually had a discussion around this with, uh, with a customer this week, talking about uh, effectively the difference between being able to block an attack and then having that real kind of um, fine-grained visibility as to what happened. You know, it's, um, it's a great thing if your endpoint is able to block a, a malware attack, but you probably want to know how did that malware get onto the endpoint? And you, you probably want to make sure that the security team's are alerted to that action as well, not just that the, the anti-malware scanner, you know, silently cleans it away, but that actually the security team is aware that uh, an event took place.
1: Especially, as, especially when we're talking about a blended uh, control model as well, because the fact that the, the one element blocked it means that potentially some other elements still failed. Doing that root cause analysis still has value to understand, well, it, oh, okay, this payload passed through the web gateway, so why yeah. didn't the web security gateway, gateway kick off? Oh, well, actually, we haven't got TLS interception turned on that we thought we did. Oh, actually, we you know, or it's bypassed for OneDrive files, which we see a lot. You know, actually... You know, we we put a workaround in mm-hmm. because the site is in, uh, deemed trusted. And um, so going and doing that is, is so key because fundamentally they're the mistakes that's probably going to lead you to having a problem um, yeah. versus um, somebody coming with a super duper zero day and, and owning you.
0: I guess we could bring in other protection mechanisms as well. So I could say something like, um, is network segmentation a real thing? And the, the reason that I would ask that quite ridiculous question is, um, I actually worked on the the NotPetya malware back in 2017 for one company. And uh, one of the big things that came out kind of publicly from uh, some of the breaches related to NotPetya were the, the fact that a lot of companies just did not have correct or, or rigorous network segmentation in place. Uh,
1: network segmentation is very hard. Um and I think we're seeing moves in terms of customers trying to reapproach network network segmentation. I know when we spoke uh, earlier today Holly yeah. you spoke you spoke about someone previously spoken about zero trust and it's one of those where I think the technology is effectively there we know how to segment we we have an approach what really isn't there is our operational processes because when you're talking about going to a zero trust security model or, or any sort of network segmentation at, at any level what you're really asking is do you truly understand from a user from a service from a, a device perspective who they should be talking to where they should be talking to and why they're doing that and and I think that's the challenge is that most organisations can't honestly tell you what should be happening yeah. and network segmentation is a whitelist approach which means you have to be able to do that so all we see customers starting to do is layering over blacklists mm-hmm. which are essentially what do I not want to happen so I don't want the user vlan speaking to databases because that yeah. should never happen rather than saying well actually where do I want the user speaking to Um, So I guess in answer to to your question, no, I don't see a lot of people doing it very well, if I'm honest. Uh, I think the one advantage we do have is that the people who do do it very well or often do it better are service providers or people who provide um, build applications. And that's good for us because the majority of customers are migrating to SaaS, at least for part of their application provision. And that means that they're not going to be responsible for building that segmentation out and by its nature, yeah. you're, you're getting much more of a one-to-one relationship between the user and that SaaS application and, and potentially network segmentation starts to have less value maybe from a, a spread yeah. of malware perspective.
0: So we've talked about um, anti-malware and and how to work out whether similar products are working. We've talked a little bit about network segmentation and how challenging that can be. And one of the things that comes out around this is, you know, internal network visibility. Network segmentation is difficult if you don't know what is supposed to be talking to what. Well, how do you get that internal network visibility? How do you make sure that you understand your network to the degree where you can test things like product efficacy?
1: I think you have to do it across a number of different places. And I think that's back to the, the sort of architectural approaches. Number one, you have to understand where can you tap the data from. So where are data sources that are useful to you, and where do they exist, and what is the limitation of tapping in different locations? So, you know, networks are great for tapping lots and lots of different points with a sort of single box or a single solution, but you know, has the downsides of it, you know needing to do decryption to to get in the way of uh, network layers um tapping on the endpoint, so providing uh, data feeds back from a, an endpoint detection solution or similar um, has the advantage of being pre-encryption so doesn't have to do uh, a man in the middle or, or breaking that encryption also that means that you've now got an agent overhead on every on every box so you now have a, an operational impact and something that you have to look out for you then take that to the next bit which is well actually not everything's always on the network and so actually then how do you monitor remote endpoints um, and you know, do you bring them back in via a VPN and, and use those same network layers? Do you put them up into a, do you look at other layers to inspect? So something like inspecting DNS traffic. So do you um, have DNS resolve back to a, a solution that's going to give you visibility there? Alternatively, do you connect it up to a, a cloud-based security service that then essentially pushes your security boundary or your security fabric or tools into into the cloud so they can be connected to via devices that are remote to the organization. But it's always going to be a combination of those things. Um, but again, it's the thinking time to think about, well, what does each element show me? And, and what do I learn from each part of the of the infrastructure?
0: So talking about different places that you can monitor, you know, you talk about um, cloud monitoring and, and pushing data up to the cloud to get visibility of it and we talk about internal monitoring you know keeping it within the organization to get visibility of it um are those the only options or is there something else
1: so i guess there are lots of options to, to how you would approach it so if we look at if we kind of break the problem space in half so you'd say let's look at on-premises first so on-premises are probably the simpler to to monitor because you control the networking equipment you control the switches you control the essentially the fabric that the the, the data is transiting through mm-hmm. and therefore you have lots of options to tap data at different points within that that environment so um, typically if you look at a say a mature organization you'd expect to see uh, an EDR technology deployed on the endpoint to provide you know real time uh, real-time information about the state of that endpoint and what's happening there. Um, You might also combine that with something that's looking specifically at data. So looking at sort of uh, data transiting on and off of that endpoint, so that file access auditing. Um, You'll then typically combine that with something that's able to collect and maybe monitor flows across the network. So NetFlow or SFlow for the purpose of looking at um, typical traffic flows um i avoid the word anomalies but but there are there is good value to be had in in network flows especially in a in more of a forensic perspective so kind of a look back to look at what happened probably more than a proactive because of the volume um you then come into your more traditional uh firewalling and and network appliances so that's going to give you visibility of traffic moving across boundaries but also typically enhance that with um, known bads or at least uh, known indicators of compromise that would potentially tell you whether or not a device is connecting to a, an unusual or, or malicious IP address, or whether the payload seen passing through it was known to match against something that we've seen elsewhere. So that's going to give you data there. And then the, probably the final piece from the on-premise bit that's really important is is your uh, is your directory. So you know active directory, um, making sure you understand you know who what authentication events are happening. Um, it's amazing how many uh how much you can do uh with uh, active directory with kind of things like roasting, and, and people don't and again this is i'm no expert in here so I... <laughs> don't,
0: don't worry I'm, I'm writing that down we'll, we'll do an episode on on kerberos attacks because we haven't actually covered those uh yet and and it's a pretty broad topic so don't worry i'm not going to hold you to the details of all of the kerberos attacks in this podcast
1: Thank you, Holly. I was going to say, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to, uh, to, to, but, but, you know, fundamentally offline ticketing attack, you know, and the, the ticketing system is broken, you could argue. So, but, but knowing what those look like and, and knowing that those logs are going somewhere that would say, Hey, this is really weird because a user just keeps kind of try, keeps uh, imitating a service account. Okay. Well, why is that happening? Cause that, that is going to be a big alarm, but people just don't aren't pulling that data back. Um, yeah, actually
0: that reminds me something that you mentioned earlier was this idea of like whitelists or or blacklists um and I, I think it's something that is important to point out yes you want to implement security using an allow list so that only known good uh can can access the system but you still probably want to implement some kind of block list just for the alerting side of things you know um you still want to be told when weird things happen even if it's not the block list that's ultimately you know protecting the system um you know we we can talk about kerberos attacks so we can talk about things like um pass the hash attacks as well you know if you see a a, a type 9 login that could be a pass the hash attack, and that's something that you would you would want to be alerted on
1: yeah I totally agree and i think it's about understanding i think the interesting thing is that the bit that people maybe not forget but isn't always uh, uh, highlighted is the great thing about whitelists is they don't require people so much. Yeah. Once you set, the, appreciate to set the whitelist up you need people, so don't get me wrong. But say you've set it up and it's a perfect world and you've only got all the whitelist in. You can walk away. The difference with the blacklist stuff is that actually blacklist requires that operational knowledge and that ability to go and check that stuff and look at, okay, if I'm going to alert on the block, it doesn't, it doesn't mean everything's Okay. It doesn't just because my anti-malware, as we kind of come back to earlier, kicked off and said, I caught this piece of uh, malware, doesn't mean that everything's fine. All it means is that one part did its job. Yeah. And I think it, and it requires that human to then actually come in and investigate. Um, and for so long, I think that's the, always been the missing piece, not in security, but in investment profiles. It's incredible. I mean, I spend my life in technology and and, you know, and I, and I love it, but it does frustrate me that I can speak to customers who will happily spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on on technology solutions, yet the idea of hiring another security analyst just seems ridiculous, like ludicrous. And I just kind of don't understand it because, you know, you, you're, you're investing in all this very expensive technology, but you, you're really not investing in the operating model to run it. Um, and then you're really surprised when it doesn't work.
0: Maybe that's because products have marketing departments, but security engineers don't.
1: Yeah, if anyone needs a marketing department for their security professional, I'm happy to be that person. Um, But yeah, (laughs) I
0: I totally agree. I mean, it sounds funny, but you know, that's what we opened with, wasn't it? The the cutting through the noise, the vendor noise thing we mentioned right at the beginning. Um, a, A lot of security products do have marketing departments telling companies that they're awesome, and not necessarily every security professional is so good at evangelizing their position and evangelizing the, the importance of that professional capability.
1: No, and I totally agree. Um, and it's incredible how when things go wrong, we, we kind of forget all the vendor tech that was in and we still blame somehow the person.
0: Because <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: Do you know what I mean? Because they're there. And I think that I, I find that quite challenging sometimes. Um, because if you boil it away, you know, that... That the, the people in that in that scenario are are the, are the the last line, aren't they? They're you know they're they're the the only ones who can deal with problems that were undefined. I mean that's I guess part of the brilliance of the human brain is we're able to to think creatively and 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 look at challenges in a in a new way. The yeah. the challenge with technology is it will only do that thing it was programmed to do. In the moment it deviates, you you know the attacker deviates from the methodology it knows about, it falls apart.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Sorry, the the sigh wasn't disagreement; it was exasperation at uh, this problem with insecurity, where where we blame the people. I, I kind of get it because you know, shouting at a uh, box in the uh, switch cabinet is probably not as um, you know effective for, for making you feel better when when things go wrong, but. I don't think blaming people is particularly effective either. I guess the, when this most commonly comes up or when I see it most commonly is in the context of of phishing engagements and you know, being a a pen tester, we we frequently perform phishing assessments and you do see where, um, you know, a user clicks a link and a bad thing happens and companies very often blame the users. And I don't think that's effective for, for two reasons. The first is if it was easy to detect, you would have detected it and blocked it at the perimeter. So, you know, spotting phishing emails can be hard, uh, and also um, if your entire organization can be taken down because a user clicked a link in an email there's some broader problems to consider there
1: yeah for sure it is a failure in the in the whole control model rather than and phishing's got so i mean sort of tangentially but phishing's got so advanced now as well and there's so many interesting things that are going on you know uh, uh, the things where people are using unicode characters like you're telling me now that we have to tell users that they need to understand the difference between unicode and the fact that an o looks like an o but isn't an o um it's getting now so technical uh, that that it is becoming unrealistic to ask users to do it it's a bit about saying you know when you when you download that file make sure to reverse engineer it and just understand uh is it exactly the same as the the, the file that you've got and, and does it perform it and it, it's it's an unreasonable expectation i think
0: well it, it sounds like we both agree broadly then um so i guess and what should companies be doing about this problem then? What, what should companies be doing about the, the issue of blame? So,
1: well, I think when I speak to organizations, my my key thing is that kind of we jump back to the beginning of the conversation where we mm-hmm. said you know, we should kind of think about building a plan and, and, and those sort of things. It's have enough resource that you give your people the space to be brilliant. And don't run your security resource at 90, 100, 110%, and then expect them somehow to have time to think about the things and do the what-if analysis and do the due diligence. Because what you're doing when you do that is that you're essentially your swap space, you know, you run out of, <laughs> you run out of memory and you're, you're into swap. Yeah, yeah. But your swap space is the vendor, yeah? And, and what you're doing is you're buying capacity. Essentially, you're buying capacity and you're buying capability. Problem with that is you're, you're only buying what they want to sell you rather than what you need. Mm-hmm. and and actually investing in your people and investing in resources that have the time to do this stuff, to think about the problems, to think about the problems in the context of your business is a tool that will continue to work year after year after year and you won't have to replace it every three years and get a new subscription or buy the latest whiz bang or you know, the latest next generation, next generation. Um, because actually what's great about humans is we we evolve and we develop and if people put time into us, actually we can deal with problems that we didn't even know existed. And I think that's, that's what I would ask people to do. Um, you know, take, take your product budget, cut it down and take some of that money and put it into your people because you can probably find ways to do the same controls for cheaper if you only have the right people.
0: Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of problems around that, around the idea of, you know, running a security team at 100%. You shouldn't run your security team at 100% because you'll burn them out. But also, when are you giving them the space to get get better? You know, when are they doing on-the-job training? When are they learning new skills? When are they checking over systems to see if they can be made more efficient? Those kinds of things.
1: 100%. And, and, and the other one is, and I'd add to that, is mm-hmm. how, um, you know, giving them time to go and spend time with vendors. Yeah. Because the reason, I guess, you know, you said to me, like, I, as I said, my job is trying to cut through that noise. But the reason I'm able to do that is because I split my time between not having to particularly deploy security programs you know i get involved in them but but i'm not i'm not there doing bau with our customers yeah um so i get the customer perspective i get the challenge i understand their business but then i spend a lot of my time with the vendors hearing from all the different people all the different pitches reading the documents and i'm able to then compare and contrast more effectively that's a valuable exercise to do um and it gives you a more objective view of the market because it's not just who you know even if you say you speak to three vendors you know that's often a Procurement term, isn't it? Go and get three quotes. But but you know what I mean? But is three even enough? You know, uh, at Softcat last year, I think I looked at our numbers. We dealt with three hundred security vendors over ten thousand pounds. So if you're only looking at three, you're you really maybe not looking at the problem. Like you're not looking at the opportunity space yeah. wide enough to get a to get a holistic view. So I guess making time for things that don't seem like they have immediate value pay dividends in the end because your team are more equipped to answer the challenges that come up because they've had more time to think about the problems.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, um, I actually mentioned earlier the how do you deal with um, things you haven't planned for? How do you deal with the, the unprecedented circumstances? Really to just kind of leverage into, you know, the coronavirus, the work from home situation that we've had recently. But I guess what you're saying here is you should be aware of the products that your vendors offer so that if you need them, Doing the due diligence and checking out the features and and learning if that product can help you becomes a lot easier, right? So it's it's just back to the thing we talked about earlier of just like a good planning will solve a lot of problems faster.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I guess you can almost summarize. I just popped in my head the like the only way to make the unknown predictable is make it known. That's because fundamentally, if it truly is unknown that nobody's ever seen this problem before in the whole history of the universe, then we're probably not going to have an answer for it. But the reality is, security isn't that complicated and there are people out there and there'll be people at different stages in their sort of security maturity and and it's likely unless you're the top you know 0.001 percent of organizations you're probably not seeing new stuff you're seeing stuff that has existed for a while which means that you do have the opportunity to plan for this um but you know there's there's exceptions to all rules but um but as a generalization I, i i think that is fair
0: yeah, we actually talked about this earlier before we started recording, you know, when you asked um, how frequently on web application penetration tests do we see the OWASP top 10? Uh, and I answered that that it's, it's really <laughs> frequent that we see um, features of the OWASP top 10. And really, that's just because, um, you know, those, those things are still out there. You could still introduce those vulnerabilities by mistake. People make mistakes. And um, just because a vulnerability is old or a vulnerability is well known doesn't mean that you can ignore it now. You can take it out of your security plan. You've still got to deal with the the run of the mill stuff
1: yeah and it's that it's that having a plan isn't it and but but I think the key challenge we'd probably get back from people if you know if people were able to throw things at us or throw things at me at least it would be it's time isn't it and it's and that's the and that's kind of the is having time and this being seen as a valuable exercise, I often think that we so heavily value getting through the project list that's the success is how many things did we deploy this year, how many changes did we make? rather than were yeah. the changes made the right changes. Because if we can make a billion changes a day, so what? If they were all useless, what was the point?
0: Yeah, I guess that comes down to how do you incentivize your team? You know, if you have an IT help desk team or something like that, you can monitor their, their progress and their work through, through things like how many tickets have been closed that day or something like that. But how do you know security is working well? If you haven't been breached, is that because you haven't been breached or really have you and, and you just haven't
1: detected it? And and I think when you're looking at that, you, you have to try to look at almost allowing it to what makes business better rather than maybe what makes like about the security effectiveness itself so how well do things integrate how well do they yeah. operate how well are your procedures how well do you hand off between teams how happy are you with the tools how much of the functionality are you using you know that's again another one i see a lot is it's incredible how much software and technology customers have that they they don't deploy
0: i guess that's why so many companies fall back on compliance for security right because you can you can measure that you can point and say look how many boxes we have ticked uh, as as a grade of security but you know what you're talking about here sounds like something harder how do you measure how well you're using a product
1: yeah i i think it's you have to i guess if you're looking at how well do you use a product i want to know i'd think about how much of it am i consuming mm-hmm. so how much of what it can do um, and I dealt that from the start point of like, you have to start with um, 100% being everything it can do, you then work out how much of it would you like, how much of that would you actually like, or how much of it would you need? Yeah. And then how much have you deployed? So that tells you the coverage. Yeah. And then the second piece is then the operational excellence. So how well are you using the tool? So if you now know how well it's deployed, or well, how well does it integrate into your existing processes? How standardized is it? You know, uh, how often is it used? When it's used, is it used effectively? So, yeah. You, I think if you, you think about it, you can start to break some of this stuff down. But but it again, it's changing the mindset away from the time should be spent on buying new things or getting more security controls versus the time should be spent on making sure what we've got is brilliant and then planning more carefully about what we should do in the future. It's such an important area for, for customers. And I think it's nice to take a step back from sometimes from uh, chasing the latest threats or latest security news and and try and look at things more holistically. So, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to chat to you.
0: And Adam, just, you know, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a great conversation and, and hopefully something a little bit different for the audience when they want to start looking at how do they know if they're doing security well or not.